book of Judges, the whole book of Judges actually, there's like this one key statement that, that kind of flows over and over. And that key statement in the book of Judges is, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I always find it very interesting because the book of Judges spans about a 300 year period in the history of Israel. And that key statement is at the start of every cycle that the Israelites had to go through. You see, the cycle that they went through went like this. We're following God. Then we begin to get persuaded to follow idols and false gods in our community, in the area that they lived in. So they would turn from God, begin to focus on these other um, false gods and begin to worship idols. So God would remove his blessing. The enemies from around the surrounding area would come in and overtake them and subdue them, turn them into slaves. And so they would, the Israelites would understandably get upset with this. So then they would begin to repent. They'd begin to cry out, God save us. So God would then raise up a judge. Now a judge is not a judge like we know it. A judge was actually a military leader. So he would raise up someone, men and women, to become judges who would then subdue the enemy and would set them free. And they would be awesome and everybody would be happy and all be worshiping and following Jesus and following God. Then they would inevitably, a generation or so later, begin to do what they thought was right in their own eyes. And so God would remove his blessing. The enemy, the surrounding enemies would come in and subdue them, would overthrow them, and then they would be brought, go back into slavery. So then they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a judge who would deliver them, and then they'd begin following God. And then we're gonna do what was right in our own eyes again, and God would remove his blessing. Can you see how this is happening? This cycle actually happens the whole way through the book of Judges for about the 300 year period. So I wanna pick up the, a story in there in Judges chapter six. Now believe it or not, this is actually the fifth cycle that they're about to enter into God having to, to uh, raise up a judge. So during this particular fifth cycle, the Israelites were actually being oppressed by the Midianites who were their direct neighbors, all right? Does that make sense? All right, so Judges chapter six, verse one. Yet again, the people of Israel went back to doing evil in God's sight. God put them under the dominion of Midian for seven years. Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves hideouts in the mountains, caves and forts. When Israel planted its crops, Midian and Amalek, the Easterners, would invade them, camp in their fields, destroy their crops all the way down to Gaza. They left nothing for them to live on, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Bringing their cattle and their tents, they came in and took over like an invasion of locusts, and their camels were past counting. They marched in and devastated the country. The people of Israel were reduced to grinding poverty by Midian, and they cried out to God for help. So like I said, we just had Israel once again, they've turned to these idols, and they've been oppressed by the Midianites, but they were in such poverty that they were starving. It had gone beyond just being made slaves and, and, and this, they were starving. There were no crops to feed anyone. They had taken all their livestock and all their cattle so they couldn't even slaughter any of them. And the people were dying. So they began to cry out to God. So in verse 11 it says, One day the angel of God came 
and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, whose son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress out of sight of the Midianites. Then the angel of the God appeared to him and he said, God is with you, O mighty warrior. Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress out of sight of the Midianites. And the angel of God appeared to him and said, God is with you, O mighty warrior. Now there are a couple of things you have to think about if you, if you even, like just even on the surface. To thresh wheat, what you had to do is you'd cut the long strains and you would go up onto a hill. And you had to be on a hill because you needed the wind. So you needed a wide open space. You couldn't have anything blocking the wind. So we're talking a large hill that was fully open for everybody to see. And you would get the wheat and you'd begin to beat it on the ground. And that was to break it up. And then you threw the wheat in the air. And as the threw in the air, what would happen is the wind would come and would blow away the chaff that was attached to it that you didn't want, and all the good wheat that you wanted would fall to the ground. Now, to pull this off, you had to be on a hill where everyone could see you. And Gideon's trying to do this in a wine press. Now, a wine press in those days was actually a massive pit dug in the hole. So he's inside the ground in a hole and he's trying to thresh wheat because he's afraid of the Midianites. And God comes and says to him, mighty warrior. I have a problem with this because in my mind, when I think about mighty warriors, I think about you know, the Highlanders of old or the Vikings of old or you know, even you know, some of the crusading knights. You know, these were men who would go out into battle. They were men who were in the front. They weren't afraid of anything. They were brave and they were fierce and they were strong. And Gideon's a mighty warrior hiding in a wine press. I don't quite understand how that works. Because aren't, aren't mighty warriors people who face their fears head on? Aren't mighty warriors people who actually confront things that are going wrong in their communities or in their, their townships, isn't that right? Does anyone understand what I'm saying? No. So how, how can God be calling Gideon a mighty warrior? In fact, if you read further down in verse 15, it actually gets worse. And Gideon said to him, me, my master, how and with what could I ever save Israel? Look at me, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh and I am the runt of the Lydia, Lydia. So here's Gideon, he's the runt, he's from the weakest clan in his whole entire, in the whole of Israel, he's hiding in a wine press. How then, how can God actually call him a mighty warrior? The thing that you have to understand about God, and this is something that you need to understand on a personal level, is that God will call greatness out of you. That God will give you your identity. It is not that Gideon was the runt. The world may have said he was the runt. The world may have said you come from the weakest, um, the, the weakest tribe. But what God saw and what God was calling out of Gideon was a mighty warrior. Because it's what God says. It's not what everybody else says. You see, God called him a mighty warrior. 
and eventually he becomes a mighty warrior. And I get he had to overcome being the runt and being afraid and being the weakest. What I find most interesting for us is that we're actually living in what I would term as the time of the judges. We live in a time where everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. If you look around the world today, everybody just does whatever they want. And so long as they're happy, it doesn't matter about what you're doing if it affects anybody else. We're living in a time where there are no more absolutes. An absolute is a value or a principle that is universally true. So for example, death is an absolute. Although to be honest, man's doing his best to get rid of that one. What it means is that it doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. It doesn't matter how old or how young. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. You could be black, white, brown, purple, orange with red polka dots. Every single person will die. Death is an absolute. As I said, it's most likely the last one left. It used to be in this world that if you were born a girl, then you would die a girl. But this day and age, if you don't want to be, you don't have to be. Because everyone's going to do what they want, what they feel is right. If you don't like being married to the person you're married to, the world says you can actually just go and find someone else. It does. If you're having issues with someone at school and you don't like them, the world says you don't even have, you can just harass them on Facebook and make their lives miserable and it doesn't matter because if you feel right. I find the whole gun thing in America quite interesting. They're all up in arms and all these high school students are, you know, we need to be safe in our high schools and, and da 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 da. And it's like, really? The majority of those kids, they said nine out, of the, the, nine out of ten of the shooters that have happened have been by kids who have been harassed and bullied by other students. You may want to go out there and defend your right to be in a safe school, but how about you stop picking on someone just because you don't like them? We live in a world that says that you can do what you like. You can be who you like. You can have what you like. And it actually doesn't matter what anybody else says. If you feel like you want something, then you can just go ahead and have that. If you, which is kind of cool, because you know what? Sometimes I feel like I should be a mermaid. I'm serious. When I'm in the water, honestly, I don't know why I'm not a mermaid because I can swim and I'm enjoying myself, but that's not the reality that I live in. We are told that our feelings are true. We are told that our feelings are right and we should live by our feelings. That's actually the biggest lie, one of the greatest lies that the enemy has come up with. Our feelings lie to us all the time. They lie to us all the time. Have you ever been home at night and you're all by yourself and you're watching a scary movie and all of a sudden you don't feel like you're alone anymore? Your feelings are lying to you. This happened to me, I remember, I was about 17 and I used to read Stephen King. Now for those of you who don't know, Stephen King writes horror books. He wrote the movie, he wrote it. He also wrote a couple of really good ones like Shawshank Redemption, but mostly he's known for writing horror stories. And I was reading this one story called Salem's Lot. And it was night, it was summer. I remember it was summer because the windows were open and it was dark and it was late and everybody else was probably asleep or close to being asleep. And I'm reading this, I'm sitting on my bed and I'm reading the story about these vampires and not the hot kind of vampires you get nowadays, about the scary vampires 
you know, that, that are going to hurt you and do all sorts of things. And I'm so afraid. And I just read this bit in the book that said that if your window is open, vampires can come in. And I had to get the window closed. But I couldn't get off the bed. I was that afraid. So I start knocking on my bedroom door because I shared it with my, uh, my sister was in the other room. Chantel, Chantel. And she's like, I hear it from the door. What? Can you come here? <laughs> no. Chantel, please, just, just come for a minute. And so after, it took me a few minutes to get her to convince her. So she comes in and she throws open the door and she's grumpy ass because it's late. And she goes, what do you want? Can you close the window? What? Can you close the window? No, you close the window. Can't get off the bed. Why can't you get off the bed? I'm too scared. So then she sighed dramatically, stomped over, slammed the window closed. I said, shut, shut the wardrobe door. <laughs> so as she walks past, she slams the wardrobe door closed. And then as she walks out of my room, she goes, I'm not checking under the bed and flicks my light out and walks out and leaves me in the dark. <laughs> it took me another 10 minutes to convince myself to get off the bed. First of all, I'm trying to look under the bed. This is the days before we had mobile phones, so it wasn't like I could use it as a torch, you know. So I'm trying to, it took me 10 minutes to get off my bed to actually turn the light back on. My feelings had me so convinced that I could not move. But I knew there was no such thing as vampires. I knew there was not a vampire outside my bedroom window. I knew there wasn't one under the bed. But my feelings had so convinced me that I could not move. Your feelings lie to you. I'm sorry to tell you, but they do. And to be perfectly honest, if you are a woman, it's even worse. It is, because you have that time of the month and you're just crying over everything and you feel like your world's falling apart and everything is terrible and it's actually not. You know what, anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> your feelings cannot be trusted. In this world culture we live in, we cannot trust what they are telling us. They give us fake news all the time. This world cannot make up its mind about what it believes. About, they keep telling us, just do what you feel like. If you look over the history of this world, we, the world has believed some dumb things. They used to believe that the world was flat. You cannot trust what they tell you. I'm serious. Romans 12 verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To be conformed means to shape yourself to the outer appearance of this world. Transformed by the renewing of your mind means to commit to the ideals of the kingdom of God. To prove means to test, to practice every day of your life. So if we break it down, what that verse is actually saying is that we are to not shape ourselves to look like the world, to think like the world, to speak like the world, to see as the world sees, to value as the world values. But we are to commit ourselves to the ideals of the kingdom of God. And if we do this every day, you will see that God's will for your life is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. But you know what? So that we don't conform to this world, so that you don't fall to everything they tell you. And let's face it, they're telling us an awful lot of stuff these days. So that you don't fall over into them, we need an anchor. 
You need something that you can anchor yourself to, something that doesn't shift with this world's ever-changing ideas. Is there anything that we know that can hold to this pressure, that cannot shift in the face of such such great discussions, and they do have great discussions, and sometimes they sound logical, but there is one thing that stands firm, that doesn't falter, that doesn't change, that is the same yesterday and is the same today and will be the same tomorrow, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the living incarnation of the Word of God. He is the living representation of the Bible. And I want to just really take a moment to talk to you about the importance of reading your Bible. And I know half of you have probably just switched off when I said that. But you have to understand something. Did you know that people died so that you could have your Bible? If you look over the world's history of Christians who are bringing the Bible into modern-day English so that the modern man, every single person, can have a Bible, they were martyred for this. We now live in a time where there is more versions of the Bible available, more readily available than any other time in history, and yet it's the time when we read it the least. Statistics tell us that only 20% of people, actually Christians, actually read their Bible, which means a whole bunch of you sitting in this room don't read your Bible. And that's a concern. The reason why it's a concern is that it means that you cannot grow. I'm going to tell you the same thing that I tell my kids. Now, I love my kids deeply, passionately. And as much as I love them, there is one thing I cannot do for them. I cannot live their Christianity for them. Just like I can't live your Christianity for you. It can't be done. You have to live your own Christianity. You have to live your own journey. And you know what? If you're not reading your Bible, you are not growing. You may have been a Christian for five years or 10 years or 15 or 30 years, and if you have not been reading your Bible in that time, then you are immature spiritually. You are still a child. You are still an infant needing milk. Now, this may sound harsh, but you know what? I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I know I'm not the nice, sweet person. We already had this discussion a few weeks ago. That's not me. But I will tell you what you need to hear, just like I tell my kids. Read your Bible. It is your lifeblood. The thing that concerns me is that people don't understand that the Bible isn't there to bore you to death. It's actually God's love letter to you. It is a story, and if you read it cover to cover, sure. I mean, to be honest, I'll be honest. I hardly ever read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because they are boring. I'll only ever generally read those when God tells me I need to. Otherwise, I just skip through them and find the bits, find, read the other bits because I get bogged down in all those numbers and all those laws. But if you aren't reading, you aren't learning, and you aren't growing, and you're still a baby, and you're still spiritually immature, and God is returning for a bride who is victorious and triumphant and growing. He does not coming back for a child bride. That is not what he wants. But you each have a responsibility to read your word. Now, I get that some of you may have learning difficulties. Then you know what? Listen to it. They have audio versions. Every single person who is not reading your Bible is just being slack, and I'm sorry, I know that's harsh, but that's the truth. You're just being slack. You have to get disciplined. It's a discipline. It's not easy. You know what? I have a membership to the gym, which does me no good because I don't bother going. You have a Bible which will do you no good because you don't bother reading it. How can you know the truth? How can you stand against what this world says when you don't know what God says? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? The thing is, God does something that no other false god in this world does, no other religion does, and he seeks you out, and he looks for you, and he chases after you, and no matter how many times you reject him, he is right there behind you. Every other religion in this world demands that you do this and you do that. Our God has done everything. He has given us his Bible, not so that you can be bored, but so that you can know who he is. It's a love letter to you. Because he pours out his heart and he tells you how much he loves you. And we are just so blasé and we reject him by not bothering. Now, you know what? It's a discipline. So when we start with stuff being disciplined, we start small. And maybe you just need to commit yourself to reading one chapter a day. Then do that. The great thing about the Bible is you can literally pick it up anywhere and start reading. It's not like you have to read from Genesis through to Revelation in order. My, at the moment, I'm stuck in Philippians. God and I have been reading, I've been reading the book of Philippians every day this whole entire month. Why? Because obviously I'm still not getting what it is God wants me to know. But I cannot impress upon you enough that you must read your Bible. You need to be able to trust God with your identity, not this world. If you do not know what God says, how can you stand against what this world is saying? See, when God calls you mighty warrior, how can you believe him if you don't know what his word says? You know what, this, this world says that I'm actually too fat to be pretty. It says I'm too ugly to be loved by extension of that other thought. It says that I'm actually too old to be able to deal with youth, but I work with youth all the time. But you know what God says? He says that I'm a beloved daughter. He says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says that I am an overcomer. He says that I am saved. He says that I am redeemed, that I am washed by the blood, that I am the head and not the tail. Now, I know those things. Why? Because I read my Bible. I know who I am because I read my Bible. My tattoo, which I only got a couple of years ago, is actually all about that. I needed to get something that would remind me who God is because I need to know who I am. And my identity kept getting lost in what this world was telling me. So I found a way to have a physical representation so I always know this is who God is and I know who I am. Now, I don't want you to go away feeling bad. I don't want you to feel like I've just growled at you. And I kind of have, and, I, and I'm only, like I say to my kids, I'm only telling you this because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you because I wouldn't care what happened to you. But I do care, passionately care about the state of your spiritual life. See, we make a decision, and we say things like, I'm gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna start going to church. And this is living water. These balls are representative of the hurts that you have, or the lies that you believe, or the things that you put into your life that are not of God. And so you say, oh, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read the Bible. And to start with, it doesn't feel like much is happening. You know, Sundays, Sundays feel a little good. The rest of the week just feels dry. But if something is worth doing, it's worth doing continually. It's worth getting disciplined about. So I'm going to be disciplined. And I'm going to keep reading. And I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep being a part of a connect group. And as I do that, what happens in my life is the things that I believe 
and the things that I thought were true and the lies that have attached themselves and the hurts that have come on begin to move. But what happens when I start to feel a little good about myself? What happens when I, I start to feel like I'm, I'm way better than I used to be? Like, I honestly know that from when I first got saved to how I feel now, I feel great, and I've dealt with a whole lot of stuff. So what happens is, sometimes we stop reading our Bible, because, you know, we're pretty good. Or we stop going to church. Or we have other things that happen on a Sunday, so we go and do those things instead. So what happens is, this is what people are going to see. What this looks like is lukewarm. Now, if I were to stand someone at the back of the auditorium, and if I say to them, what is it you can see when you look at this, they might not even see that there's anything in here. What they're going to see are the ping pong balls. In the same way that people see our inconsistencies and our hypocrisy. The same way that people look at our lives and they see our flesh. You see, you don't have to feel judged by that. You just have to keep coming to church. You just have to keep reading your Bible. You just have to get into a connect group. You just have to get in to a serving team. And as you do that, and as you commit, and as you get disciplined, all that stuff just disappears off your life. And all you're left with Get out. <laughs> All you're left with is the Spirit of God. You just got to allow God to overrun and overflow everything. But here's the best part. When the world comes along or the enemy comes along and he starts to lie to you again, starts to tell you that you're not something, that you can't be anybody, that you're a nothing, the lies can't stick. The lies cannot stick when you are filled with the Spirit of God. I don't want you to be half filled. I don't want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be so filled with the Spirit of God that the enemy can no longer disrupt your life. I don't want to, I'm not going to drag this out. Gideon goes on and do you know what happens? He becomes that mighty warrior. I don't know what it is that God is calling out of you, but he will be calling greatness out of you because God does not make anything that is not great. God does not create anything that does not have purpose and have value. So whatever it is that God is calling out of you, the enemy will be lying to you about, trying to get you to stop. The reason why they attack our absolute values is because you, if you do not believe in absolutes anymore, then you will not believe that the word of God is absolute. And the word of God is absolute. So I want to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And I'm, think, I'm going to talk to two different types of people. Those of you who have been Christians for a while and maybe you've let the discipline slip. Maybe you've let your discipline slip. Maybe you've stopped reading your Bible or you've stopped coming to church. Maybe you, you stopped serving or you stopped going to connect group. Whatever it is. But you know you cannot grow without it. So I want you to take that moment and just talk to God about it. Just 
recommit. Because that's between you and God. Like I said, it's your, it's your spiritual journey, not mine. You have to decide that with God. And maybe you're sitting here, and I don't want to presume that every single person here is in relationship with God. Maybe you aren't in relationship with God. Maybe you don't know him as your saviour. And you need to. So if there's anyone in here like that and you're saying, you're saying, actually, I want to know him. I want to have that relationship. If there's anyone in here like that, if you just want to put up your hand, then I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. Uh, I will ask you to fill out the card in front of you if you've made that commitment. But otherwise, if you just want to put up your hand so we can pray, that would be awesome. No? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for your truth that never changes. I thank you, God, that your truth is the same yesterday and it's the same today and it's going to be the same in a thousand years from now. I thank you, God, that you have given us your word, that we can feast off it. I thank you, God, that you've put it in our hands in such a way that we cannot deny, Father, that it's freely available to us. And I pray, God, that each and every person here has that moment with you today where they make that commitment where they determine that they will not be a babe satisfied with the milk, but, Lord, that they will determine to grow within themselves, that they are determined to stand against this ever-changing world and its thoughts, and that they will hold true to your word. Thank you, God. I pray, God, that you just bless them. Lord, that as they begin to read their word, Lord, that it's going to be exciting, that you're going to speak to them. God, that you're going to ignite something within them. God, give them a hunger and a thirst for you, a hunger and a thirst for your word and for your presence, God, in their lives. I thank you, God, that this is a church full, not of people who just turn up to a church on a Sunday, but a church full of disciples, a church full of people who are going to read and heed the word of God and do what it says. I thank you, God, that this is a church of people who are going to turn this world upside down. Lord, that we're going to be known, Father, as a church full of people who see miracles, who speak words of life into situations, people who walk with Jesus and not walk with this world. We thank you, God, that we're going to have a people so passionately devoted to you, God, that they're going to begin to call us crazy, that they're going to begin to, to, to just come, but God, that people are going to seek us out to know of your presence. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. I need to stand to your feet this morning. Why don't you just close your eyes?